0: The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people. And all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation." When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people into three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, "'Who is it that said, "'Shall Saul reign over us? "'Bring the men, "'that we may put them to death?' But Saul said, "'Not a man shall be put to death this day, "'for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel.'" Then Samuel said to the people, "'Come, let us go to Gilgal, "'and there renew the kingdom.'" So all the people went to Gilgal and there the people so, so all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all of the men rejoiced greatly. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who works salvation. You're the God who sends his spirit throughout the earth to give strength and guidance to those whom you've called your own, to those who have trusted in you. Lord, I pray that you would realign our hearts with you, that we would once again replace whatever lesser kings or replacement kings sit on our hearts with you, the king who is, the one who reigns from on high the one who always will be king, whether or not we acknowledge you as such. Lord, I pray that you would send your spirit this morning to convict our hearts, to strengthen and encourage our hearts where appropriate, and to once again reveal to us Jesus, the one we need. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So in this passage, pretty obviously, Saul, Israel's new king, he gains his first victory, right? So he's just been anointed as king and he gains his first victory. But the lesson that we have the benefit of learning from it, the lesson that Israel failed to learn from it by the end of verse 15 is that there is no salvation apart from God. There is no salvation apart from God. We, 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 like Israel, we are easily deceived. We've we talked through this whole series about the, the lesser kings and the replacement kings that we set upon the throne of our hearts. And, and, and sometimes when we set up those kings, we, we, we experience the immediate negative consequences of replacing God as the king of our lives. But sometimes those those lesser kings, those replacement kings, they actually come through for us. They actually do what we hope they will do for us. They they come through in the ways that we're expecting them to. And what we easily to our own detriment fail to realize is that whatever good we might experience, despite our idolatry, despite our, our godless desires, doesn't ultimately come from the idols themselves, from the lesser kings themselves, but from God himself. And this is what Israel missed in this passage. And this is the lesson that we, we so desperately need to learn. So, in order to follow this, we're, we're going to have two points to guide our time today. Two simple points that I'll reveal as we go. And, and two points that will help us to see how this applies to our lives in such intimate and poignant ways. So the first... The first point is, lesser kings won't always fail you. Lesser kings won't always fail you. That's our first point. There's an assumption that we we oftentimes make that that if we set up lesser kings on our hearts, they'll, they'll always fail us. They'll never deliver. They'll always be dissatisfying completely. That's not always the case. Look at verses 1 through 3. Let's look at this passage and just kind of understand what's going on. Verses 1 through 3, Nahash, the the leader of the Ammonites, comes up against Jabesh Gilead, okay? And, 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 And he besieges them. He takes advantage of the fact that Israel is actually more concerned about the Philistine aggression on the eastern front, takes advantage of that distraction, comes up against Jabesh Gilead on the western front, And attacks them. Jabesh Gilead has no ability to defend themselves. And so they say, let's make a treaty with you. Well, You know what, we'll we'll be subservient to you. But Nahash, he's not interested in just conquering them. He wants to bring shame on them. He wants to bring shame on Israel. So he says, yeah, we'll, we'll allow you to just surrender so long as we gouge out your right eyes. This is a violent, gruesome treaty that's being made by by Nahash. And so so the people say, Well, okay, 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 okay. Give it give us seven days to find salvation. And Nahash, so confident that they're not going to be able to, to send word throughout all the land of Israel, which is which is pretty improbable, says, Yeah, fine, go for it. We'll give you seven days. So the the word reaches the land of Gibeah where Saul is, and Saul is coming in from the farm, and he sees people weeping, and he says, what's going on? And they tell him what Nahash had done, what Nahash had committed to do to the people of Jabesh-Gilead. And look at, look at verse 4, it says, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, And his anger was kindled against Nahash and the Ammonites. And so what he did is he took his oxen and he cut them into pieces. And he sent them throughout all the land of Israel with his messengers and said, If anybody does not come to the aid of Jabesh Gilead, I will do to their oxen what I've just done to this one. And just just a point, this this actually sounds vaguely familiar, and you'll see in a second, to something that happened in Judges chapters 19 through 21. Now, Saul had been proclaimed king, remember, in chapter 10. But it wasn't by the entire nation of Israel. Everybody wasn't there yet. So the fact that Saul is able to to gain a united response indicates that, that something is happening here. The nation is actually responding to his kingship. before. Before the monarchy existed, Israel was was a a sort of disunited nation, oriented by tribes, each tribe making their own decisions. But Saul here says, I, your new king, I implore you, come to Jabesh Gilead's aid. And 330,000 people come. And so they muster the troops. Saul divides them into three different camps, and they come against the Ammonites, somewhere between 2 and 6 in the morning, during the morning watch. And before the heat of the day, just as Saul promised, they wipe them out. So that there weren't two Ammonites who were able to flee together. Just wiped them out. And then verses 12 through 15, the people look to Saul, their king, and they say, who was it who doubted that Saul would be able to do this? Bring him here, let's kill him. And Saul says, no, nobody's going to die today. You know why? Because the Lord has worked salvation for Jabesh Gilead. And so he says instead, come with Samuel, let's renew the kingdom. And essentially what he's saying there is, let's come and actually establish me as king and us as a nation, a unified kingdom. Let us renew the kingdom. And so they do. And the people gather and they rejoice. And they proclaim Saul as Savior. Savior salvation. The theme of salvation is at the core of chapter 11 here. One, it's the need of Jabesh Gilead, right? Verse 3, they said, give us, give us seven days to find somebody to save us. Two, it's the promise of the new king. Saul says, I will save you. And three, it's the happy conclusion. Jabesh Gilead is saved. And the word—the Hebrew word for save is repeated five times throughout this text. That's the clear theme and there are two things I want you to notice from this text first is that Jabesh Gilead experiences salvation at the hands of Gibeah and you think well great <laughs> what does that mean if you recently read through the book of Judges specifically Judges 19-21 through 21, you would know how significant this is because Gibeah, friends, was the city where the horrors of Judges 19-21 through 21 took place. Gibe- Gibeah was, was Sodomburg and Gomorrahville. It was, it was the place where an entire city of perverse citizens abused a woman through an entire night of terror until dawn brought her the pitiful relief of death. A thing that at the end of chapter 19 of of the book of Judges says that such a thing had never happened in the land and never has since. So disgusting was it. So that's Gibeah, mind you. Further, when Israel heard about all this, and, and actually again, this is this just describes how low Israel was, cut the body of the woman into pieces and sent it out throughout the land. Sounds similar? Israel heard about this, did that, sent these pieces throughout the land and said, all Israel, come to the aid of us as we seek to avenge this atrocity. And all of Israel does come, except for who? Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead does not come so here we have Sodomberg Gibeah on one hand coming to the rescue of the city who would come to no one else's rescue these are two cities that that the book of Judges ends with that are the darkest holes in Israel but isn't this so like God to work like this? To, to bring light out of darkness. To make, to, to make depraved cities rescuing cities. To rescue those who wouldn't come to the rescue. To save sinners like you and me through the death of a sinless Savior. A, a, a simple reminder here. A simple reminder There is no darkness into which the light of God's grace cannot shine in your life. Where where, where, where are you in the midst of darkness like this? Doubting that the Lord cannot shine the light of his grace into. Maybe you just need to hear that this morning. To be reminded of how low these two cities had come and how God used them for the sake of redemption and salvation. That's the first thing I want you to notice in this text. The second thing is that Saul, the king that Israel chose over the God they had rejected, gained victory over Israel's enemies. He came through. This is something that we need to realize about our lesser replacement kings, about, about our idols. You, you might have heard growing up that, that the pleasures of this world, they're, they're just not satisfying. They're not empty. <laughs> that, that They'll never give you what, what you want from them. But... There's a reason they're so attractive. There's a reason we're so drawn to them. Because in some ways they actually do come through for you. And it's important to realize that they provide, albeit in lesser and oftentimes perverted ways, the salvation or the redemption or the victory that you're expecting them to. Drugs feel good. When people take them, they, they, they create a feeling within, within the brain and the body that is desirable, albeit ultimately destructive. But first comes something that, is, that, that feels good. Alcohol numbs the sting of life, albeit temporarily and ultimately destructively. Money does create security and temporary happiness. Pride and selfishness do get you places in life. They, they do allow you to, to climb the rungs of the corporate ladder, to make a name for yourself, to gain popularity and influence. The, the, the ships that are bound for Tarshish actually do take you to Tarshish if you, if you step on board. Referencing a point from Jonah from our recent California celebration retreat. But the point is, these lesser kings, these idols that you're looking to, oh, they sometimes come through. They deliver the good thing that you're asking them to deliver for you. Sometimes your replacement kings come through for you. Don't underestimate the strength of their appeal. That's the application for you in this. Is is not to just to just say, uh, because I am a Christian, because I'm saved, then the, the, the luster of the world will no longer appear beautiful and shiny to me anymore. That's wrong. The temptation of those lesser kings, of those idols who would lure you away from God is real. It's real. But listen. Even as Saul, this lesser king, this replacement king, achieves victory for the sake of Israel. Verse sixteen or verse six. Look at this. The spirit of God rushed upon Saul. Verse thirteen. For today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. In the background of this whole story, God, Yahweh, the King who is, is quietly standing in the background reminding you as a reader he's still there. He still is the king who is. And that brings us to the second point, that the king who is will never fail you. Lesser kings, replacement kings, won't always fail you. They will ultimately fail you every time. But the king who is will never fail you. One commentator, Dale Ralph Davis said of, of chapter 11 that the point the writer is making in this story is that Jabesh's situation and Saul's success came about only by the Spirit's power. Only by the Spirit's power. Look at, look at verse 6. It says that that the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. That that word in relation to the Spirit is only used one other time. Again, it's it's in the book of Judges with a man named Samson. Guys, remember Samson? Strong Samson who ended up pushing the pillars of of the building down, defeating God's enemies and ultimately himself. But but you see Saul here, he's kind of a, a second Samson. Saul is described as, verse 3, a savior, which is a term assigned to Othniel and Ehud, who were both judges in the time prior to 1 Samuel. In fact, nearly every single one of the judges prior to the birth of Samuel were said to have gained victory, whenever they did gain victory, by the Spirit of the Lord. Okay, this, the author says, is what, this, is what God's Spirit does. He takes this shy, hesitating farmer and makes, makes him function like a super judge. That's the difference the Spirit makes. Every time God's people are delivered in the period of judges and of the monarchy, it happens by the power that God gives through His Holy Spirit. Every time. Listen, it cannot be missed that while God uses the judges to preserve his people, none of them are the leader that they ultimately need. In none of these cases are the judges or even Saul the leader that they ultimately lead. And this truth is quietly whispered through this story of Saul's first victory. That it's not Saul who they need. The leader they need is the one who fills Saul with his power by his Spirit. And friends, the leader you need is the one who fills you with strength by his Holy Spirit. God's Word says in, in Ephesians 5.18, it says, Be filled with the Spirit. It says, Do not get drunk with wine. In other words, don't fill yourself with, with alcohol to help you feel better but be filled with the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is is what empowered and strengthened the judges. The filling of the Spirit is what strengthened Jesus in the wilderness. When the disciples gathered to pray for their brothers who were in prison because of the preaching of the gospel in Acts chapter 4, verse 31 says that they were filled with the Spirit as they prayed. Friends, friends, This is a reminder to each and every one of us that as followers of God, we we need the filling of God's Spirit for strength, for guidance, for comfort, for empowerment. We need to actively depend on God's Spirit. How do we do this? How do you do this? Well, 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 one... It's to actively trust in his presence and power. To, to look to him in the same way that a little girl going on a hike with her dad through the mountains trusts her dad to guide her and protect her. And you know, her, her boots and her, her walking stick and her compass, all those things are assist, assistances to her, but ultimately she's looking at her dad. To guide her in the way that she needs to go. Ultimately, she's looking to her dad to protect her if danger does come upon her. In the same way that the little girl's eyes are directed toward her dad, we need to live our lives with eyes directed toward God's spirit for the protection and the guidance and the help and the strength that we need. Now, Secondly, we do this by prayer. By prayer. A dependence on the Holy Spirit is, is achieved through prayer. Ask him for grace. One, one, of, one of the unique roles of the Holy Spirit is that he applies the grace that Jesus achieved on the cross. He, he applies the finished work of Christ to the hearts of those who believe, Je- Jesus purchased deliverance from sin, and the Spirit applies that to your life. Je- Jesus purchased God's presence with you. The Spirit applies that. That is the role that the Spirit apply, or plays in our salvation. He plays an active role Role. It's not just that Jesus died on the cross and there's some sort of magical transmission of the work of, of, of his cross to our hearts. No, the Holy Spirit is active in that. And we would do well to regularly pray and ask him for his grace. To, to, to ask him for the grace of his guidance. To ask him for the grace of his deliverance of his presence, of his power. Ask him to give you the strength to depend on sin and to resist, or to depend on him and to resist sin. Don't do that. Never do that. Ask him for the grace to help you to forsake your replacement kings. And, and, And maybe you've gone through this whole series and you know What that replacement king is, it's sitting on your heart. You know what you've been worshiping other than God. And you just haven't been able to depose that. To remove that from your heart. Whatever it is that you're committed to, and, and the Spirit has convicted you that that has no place in your life. Ask Him for the grace give you deliverance, victory, even over that. Because that's the kind of thing that we can't do in our own strength. Jesus accomplished God's redemptive purposes for you. The Spirit applies it. Friends, we do well to seek that help. Now, sometimes, sometimes God grants His spirit, he grants a filling of his of his spirit, a fresh filling of his spirit, even when we don't ask it. Which is what happened to Saul, and therein lies the very central point of this text. Look at verse thirteen. Even Saul recognizes that he can't take credit for the victory. Saul acknowledges. This is really important. Listen to this. Saul acknowledges that he's not the savior. This is something, this is early in in Saul's reign, and Saul changes over time. But early in Saul's reign, he's able to acknowledge, I'm not the Savior. The Lord has worked salvation in Israel today. And and listen, listen, it's not that God is active in some things and not active in others. It's not as if God delivers Israel in some points and then at other times when they're delivered he wasn't really active in it and the the king or the judge can take credit for it. No, he always does. Romans chapter 11, verse 34. The apostle Paul waxes eloquent about the wonder of God and he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. (laughs) You catch what that means? That means all things are from him. Is anything not from him? No. All things are through him. Everything comes through him. He is the means by which we receive life and breath and our entire being. And all things are to him, meaning that he deserves the glory for every last thing. Everything comes from him. There is no salvation apart from God because God is over and above and behind everything. James chapter 1, verse 17 affirms this yet in the positive and it says, every good and perfect gift comes from above from the Father of lights. Referring to Yahweh. In, in other words, whatever is good in your life, if there is anything good that you have or experience, even from your, your idolatrous desires, if there is anything purely good in that, it originated nowhere other than God. Is there anything good in your life? Have you ever received anything good? It came from God. There's nothing good apart from God. And finally, Paul, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17... And you can get these verses from me after the service if you're missing any of them. This is a really helpful verse. because, but Actually, you know what? Turn, turn to it in your Bibles, if you would. 1 Timothy 6, 17. Okay, Paul is telling Timothy to charge the rich not to be arrogant in their riches. Or, or, or to set their hopes in riches. In other words, don't replace God with money as king in your heart. And don't look to it for deliverance. And, and, and just replace money with any other lesser king that, that you would. Don't, don't replace God with whatever lesser king, whether it's money or, or, or anything else, and look to it for deliverance. But depend on what? God. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on, on, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God Who get this? Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Everything that God gave us in its its original form is good. And then we're the ones who pervert it. And that's why that's why we said in, in that first point, sometimes your your replacement kings do deliver. Because in itself, money is not an evil thing. But when we pervert it and look to it as an ultimate thing, it works for evil purposes, and and it it, it begins to, to fester in our hearts as idolatry. Listen, if there is anything truly good in your life, it cannot be separated from God's goodness. It cannot be separated from God's sovereign oversight. It cannot be separated from God's power. Listen, going back to that first point again, drugs help you to feel better because God graciously created substances that have medicinal and healing qualities to help restore our broken bodies. But then we abuse them. We use them for our own pleasure. You see, a good thing becomes an evil thing when we turn it into a savior thing. A good thing becomes an evil thing or a corrupt thing when we turn it into a savior thing, when we look to it to perform what God can only do. Pride gets you places, because, in fact, you are beautifully and wonderfully made in the image of God. You you are magnificent in that you reflect God. You are a wonder of his creation, but you were made that way to glorify God. You weren't made that way to puff yourself up, to become the center of your own world, to become the center of other people's worlds, but in fact to place God where he belongs at the center of everybody's world. To glorify him. Pride gets you places. It it delivers on on the, the good that you're hoping for it. But only for a time and in a perverted, corrupt way. A good thing becomes an evil thing when it becomes a savior thing. Something, and and I know we have kids in the room, but but sex is gratifying because God gave it as a gift to enjoy within the context of marriage. But then we distort it and see it as something to, to be defined and used in however we wish. A good thing that becomes a corrupt thing because it becomes a savior thing. Money money does secure stability and, and happiness, at least for a, for a time, because God is the great provider. God provides, and we take the joy that should come from, from seeing his provision and separating the gift from the giver and finding our joy in the gift itself. A good thing becoming an evil thing when it becomes a savior thing. Friends, we we do this constantly. Just like Saul, a good thing, a king. There was nothing wrong with Israel wanting a king. But a good thing became an evil thing when they looked to it as a savior thing. And that's what happens in the final verses of chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. As the kingdom is renewed in Gilgal, Samuel, you wouldn't wouldn't notice this until you really begin to read chapter 12, but Samuel's absent in Gilgal. Samuel, who had warned them that that their desire for a king was a desire to replace God as king. These people are forgetting that. They're saying, Saul saved us. This is good. We can depend on Saul. They're already beginning to forget That this good thing will easily become an evil thing if it becomes a savior thing. And that's how Israel was looking at Saul. Samuel's absence here implies that they'd forgotten the warning. And here they are celebrating Saul as though he's their savior. Friends, do not be deceived by the victories of your replacement kings. Success does not validate your lesser kings. Don't be deceived into believing they deserve the credit for whatever good you experience from them. What are are the good things that have become evil things because they've become savior things in your life? What are those? What are you giving credit for, for deliverance other than God? Think about. Think about a, a recent victory or deliverance, a, a recent good thing in your life, okay? A new job, a growing friendship, a pregnancy, healing from a sickness, the, the vacation that you just bought, whatever, whatever it is, graduation, the, the, the A that you got on a paper at the, or at the end of a semester, whatever it was, and the list could just go on and on and on, and you probably have an answer outside of all those that I just suggested, but whatever that is, what's that good thing? that comes to mind. Now, if there was a ceremony to celebrate that moment and you had to give a speech, who would you give credit to? And, and, and by, by the way, I, I love post-game speeches or interviews with athletes after games, and they're trying to give credit to the right people, and they all say the exact same things. <laughs> I play, my team played really hard, so did the other team, really respect them, now we have gotta play the next game. Or anybody at, at the Oscars, or they, they, it's all the same things. And every once in a while, somebody gives a cursory mention to God. Thank the Lord for, for what he's done here, but, but what, who would you give credit to? I think some common ones for us would be, I, maybe I'd give credit to my hard work. I've worked really hard for this. I put in the work, I gave the input, and this is the output. That's how it works. It's mathematical. It's an equation. You work hard, you get stuff. You work hard, you succeed. The hard work is a good thing, but it becomes an evil thing, a replacement of God when it becomes a savior thing, when you begin to depend on hard work as though that is what will deliver you in your life. Or maybe you'd give credit to just a belief that, I deserve this. I have waited. I have endured failure after failure after failure. I have endured loss after loss after loss. I deserve this. And listen, patience and humility are good things. These are, these are virtues, these are, these are characteristics of, of, of citizens in God's kingdom. But even something as good as patience and humility can become wrong things, evil things, when they become savior things. When you say, because I've been so patient, I deserve the victory that I just achieved. Or or maybe maybe it's your education, or your intelligence, or or your friends, or parents, or mentors, whoever it were, Uh, another person outside of you saying they were the ones who deserve the credit for this. When all the while behind all of it, it's God, and and I'm not just I'm not talking about a a cursory praise God, a cursory I give thanks to God for this. Uh, uh, you know a, a pending hashtag blessed at the at the end of your social media post No, uh, we're, we're talking about Looking to God as Savior Because in his very nature that who that's who he is Deliverer who saves your soul You see Saul points forward to a better Savior When he defeated the Ammonites, he points forward to Jesus' defeat of sin. Colossians 2.15 says that God, through Christ, put to shame the rulers and authorities that ruled over this world and your heart, namely sin and Satan. He put them to shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Saul's victory over the Ammonites points forward to Jesus' victory over sin and Satan. But, but look also at verses 12 and 13 of 1 Samuel 11. When Saul showed mercy to those who had previously opposed him, what did he say? He said, No, don't kill them. You see, Saul's mercy there points forward to Jesus' mercy. Who, when he was being nailed to the cross and soldiers were, were bartering away his clothes and possessions, he looked at them, those who were actively participating in his own unjust crucifixion. He said, What? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. See, the God who's behind every victory, every deliverance, demonstrated through the cross of his own son just how capable he is. of achieving deliverance even over even the most cruel and powerful enemy. He showed through the cross how capable he is of showing mercy to you when you do doubt, when you do reject, when you do mock his kingship over his over your life. How capable he is of showing mercy mercy when you give replacement kings credit for the victories that he has won for you. Friends, Whatever victories those replacement kings have won, Jesus offers a better victory. Whatever deliverance those replacement kings have have given to you, Jesus offers a better deliverance. Whatever good you have received through those replacement kings and idols, Jesus' goodness far exceeds it. And in fact, you were shown that goodness that you might see and behold and look to the goodness of Jesus Christ. Don't be deceived into believing in the victories of your replacement kings. When you do, run to the true savior to find mercy for your failure, to acknowledge him. And then acknowledge him. Acknowledge him as the very king and savior that you need. Whatever was good in Saul came from God and was perfected in Christ. Whatever good in your replacement kings, whatever good you find in your replacement kings comes from God and is perfected in Christ. There is no salvation apart from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a saving God. You're a God who's demonstrated that you, you are powerful to achieve victory and deliverance over any enemy that would, that would oppose you and that could threaten our soul. Father, you, your son achieved salvation for us, a better salvation, a better good than we could have ever imagined. Lord, help us to look to you, help us to depend on the power of your spirit in all things,